Reunion Zechariah chapter 11 verses 12 and 13 and Matthew chapter 27 verses 9 and 10 was presented by Jack Crabtree on August 7, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute. Reunion to knock in the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. Okay, there is a handout. For the sake of Before my presentation, I'm going to ignore it. I'll let you look at that. That might go into a little bit more detail on some issues, but we don't have a lot of time here. I'm going to assume your familiarity with the passages, so I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to argue that the passage we're looking at in Matthew is not a citation. There is no citation in Matthew. I know that our translations put it in bold letters and treat it like it's a quote. It's not. You really have to stretch to look at that and find anything being cited there except a couple of phrases that arguably could be citations. But I would argue those are not so much citations as they, they are allusions. Now, as allusions, they function the same way as a citation. They take you back to the passage, and it's actually the message of the passage that Matthew is using, not the words that he uses to allude to the passage. And I'm going to argue that the allusion is to Zechariah 11 and has nothing to do with Jeremiah whatsoever. It's just Zechariah 11. Okay, in particular, it's Zechariah 11, 4 through 14, which I understand to be a part of a prophetic, probably vision uh, of some kind. It doesn't really matter what the mode of, of the prophetic revelation is. But I will also argue that this is an allegory. And my first clue that this is an allegory is verse 7. Sorry, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard because that's what I looked at this in. There might be slight variations with the NIV that you have. I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock, and I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor and the other I called union, so I pastured the flock. I think that's a very clear indication that we're dealing with an allegory here. He's taking these two elements, these two staffs, and he's naming them, favor and union. Why do you label them? Well, just like Pilgrim's no, Progress, the, the pool of despondency, the city of this, the city of that, you are naming them because you are cluing the reader in to the symbolic value of that particular element. So that's a clue that I have that I'm dealing with an allegory. The other clue I have is the way he starts, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. Well, in real life, is that a problem? If a shepherd has no pity on his sheep, don't shepherds shepherd flocks to have them grow up in the Hebrew context to be offerings to God, for one thing? and to be food, on the other hand, and wool. But ultimately, don't all sheep eventually become slaughtered in real-life shepherding? I've never been near a real-life sheep or a shepherd, but I think that makes sense. 
But he is pitting them against each other. He's wanting a shepherd to appoint a shepherd who's going to shepherd this flock doomed to slaughter, who, in contrast to these other shepherds, has pity on them and doesn't want slaughter. It seems to me that is the sense I... Well, that has to be an allegory then. The slaughter is symbolic of something, and shepherding with favor and union is symbolic of something in contrast to the slaughter, but only if it's an allegory. Can we make any sense out of that, it seems to me? Okay, I can get that far. The problem is, all I know is I have a prophetic vision that's an allegory, and I have a whole universe and thousands of years of history to go rummaging through the jetsam and flotsam of history to ask which historical events does this correspond to? Well, that looks like an overwhelming task. So I'm going to go, I can't remember if it's backwards or forward. I'm going to go backward and I go to Matthew, but Mm -hmm. Carl mentioned sometimes you have to do both. I'm actually doing both. I'm not going backward. I'm going backward in order to go forward. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is it takes a certain amount of skill. When you go forward, you need to make sure that you're not prejudiced by having come backward. That is, I'm going to get a clue out of Matthew about what Zechariah is talking about, but it's very important that I don't think that I understand what Matthew's talking about, carry that with me back to Zechariah, and shoehorn Zechariah into my understanding of Matthew. That would be inadmissible, it seems to me, because the logic is always forward into the New Testament. It's never the other direction. We can only use the New Testament legitimately to guide us by giving us clues, but I have to go back and deal with Zechariah on its own terms and with integrity and try to understand what Zechariah was saying in his context, never mind what Matthew does with it. I need to understand what he's doing with it in his context. And then when I'm done with that, then I can ask myself the question, so what are you seeing, Matthew? If this is what Zechariah means, what are you seeing? So I don't want to do anything inappropriate by going to Matthew, but I do want to get a clue from Matthew. And the clue I have from Matthew is it has something to do with Jesus. Well, that helps me because instead of going all the way back to Adam or Enoch or Abraham or anywhere else, I'm going to look for this prophecy here to be somehow located in the coming of the Messiah. So I go back to Zechariah then and I say, does this work? Is there any way that I can understand Zechariah that might make sense out of that? So let's try Thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Zechariah. But notice when you get down to 15, after he's finished this prophecy, and what I'm going to argue is that it's actually a prophetic prediction. Once we get past all the allegory and everything else, this is one of the simplest passages we've looked at, because I will argue it's just a flat-out, straightforward prediction. Zechariah predicted something, and Jesus' death was the fulfillment of it. That's what I'm going to argue. But it takes us a while to get there. But after he gets done with this prediction from 4 through 14, notice how it goes. The Lord said to me, Zechariah again, having told him to pasture the flock doomed to slaughter in verse 4, now in 15 he tells Zechariah, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, and so on. I want you, Zechariah, to take on the equipment of a foolish shepherd because I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing. Well, in that case, it's pretty straightforward. I'm asking you, Zechariah, to take the place of 
something that's going to happen in a figure, a personage, who's going to come along in the future, who's not going to care for the flock and so on, the foolish shepherd. So in the second little play acting that he's asking Zechariah to do, I want you to play act the part of the foolish shepherd. So what is he doing in the first one? Zechariah, I want you to play act the part of another shepherd, of a different shepherd. What if that's the Messiah? Me thinks. Okay. So thus says the Lord my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter, those who buy them, slay them, and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. Could he be describing a period in the life of his people, Israel, where I'm not sure those who buy them slay them. I don't think that's anyone in particular. I think what he might just be describing is the level of violence, the level of corruption, the level of dishonesty, the level of unrighteousness in their dealings with one another. They're not dealing with each other in the way they ought to be dealing with each other. And the shepherds have no pity on them. The shepherds over them at this period of time in history are not doing anything really to guide them out of the unrighteous mutual exploitation of one another that their unrighteousness brings them to. They're not doing anything to lead them out of that. Could that describe the period in the time of Jesus? Seems to me it could. Jesus seems to have a moral critique of that generation that he offers them. For I will no longer, this is God speaking, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall each into another's power and into the power of his king. And they will strike the land and I will not deliver them from their power. It seems to me that this is a prediction of the judgment upon Israel that comes about in 70 AD. He's going to give them over into the power of a king He will not deliver them from their power. He's going to turn them over. Yeah, okay. That's what he had said in the verse before, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. And it wasn't until later in my years as a student of the New Testament that I began to really notice this, but Jesus is quite keenly aware of the doom that hangs over the head of the people of Israel as he is ministering to them. And it finally comes out very explicitly when he predicts the events of 70 AD, but when he weeps over Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I would have loved to gather you into my hands. Yeah. Why is he saying that? What is he weeping about? He knows what is in store for them. He knows that they're a flock doomed to slaughter, as verse 4 says, and he has been asked to pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. His shepherding is not going to curtail that. It's not going to stop that. It's not going to keep that from happening. So I, Zechariah, standing in for the Messiah, pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor and the other I called union, so I pastured the flock. Well, what does it mean in pasturing the flock? He was trying to guide them and lead them, teaching them in such a way that they could maintain this favor that he's talking about. And what later the favor is broken Well, I think the favor being broken is what he's just talked about, their destiny. Rome is going to come in and devastate them. That they have favor of sorts in being protected from their enemies that would do harm to them up until that point. But when he breaks the rod of favor, then that protection is going to go away. And union 
Jesus is calling on the people to be of one mind, one heart, one soul, if you will, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind that would bring unity to all the people. But in the end, what happens to that unity? My understanding is, if you read Josephus, you realize that a lot of the havoc during the 70 AD was a civil war, that he took away any sense of solidarity and commonality, and they fought each other. And that, I think, later is the breaking of the rod of unity. And the house of Judah and Israel is representative of sort of a conic split among the Jewish people. But I don't think he means Israel and Judah. I think he just means a fragmentation of the Jewish people that was accentuated in the events of 70 AD. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock, and I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor, the other I called union, so I pastured the flock. I sought to teach them what they needed to know that would lead to the continuing of favor and the establishment of unity. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die, and what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated, and let those who are left eat one another's flesh. I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I made with all the peoples. That is, I think the covenant with them was, you stay away from my people, and I don't know if it was a two-sided covenant or not, but you peoples, you nations, stay away from my people. If he breaks that, he is withdrawing his covenant that he's made with them, okay, have at it. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of Yahweh. And I think the word of Yahweh was the coming doom, the coming judgment. Now back up for a second to verse 8. I annihilated the three shepherds in one month. Not sure why the one month. I don't know what that would symbolize. In the time of Jesus, who might be the three shepherds? Well, who are the shepherds of Israel in the time of Jesus? Is it not the priests, the rulers, and the rabbis, the three segments of the Sanhedrin, the three different groups represented in the Sanhedrin? What does he mean he annihilated them? Not sure about the translation. I didn't get far enough to look at that. But even if it does mean annihilated, this is an allegory. This is symbolic of something. What is it symbolic of? Jesus in his ministry was undermining the effect of their leadership, which as we saw, wasn't guiding the people into righteousness. He was calling them to be righteous and to guide them into righteousness and to accomplish the things that God wanted them to accomplish. But he was critical of what they were doing and the way they were going about it and what they were doing. He didn't like what they were doing and they didn't like him, which I think is what he says here. I annihilated the three shepherds in one month for my soul was impatient with them and their soul also was weary with me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. And I think it probably indicates what actually happened in the history of Jesus. There came a point where Jesus basically set his mind toward Jerusalem to die, set his face toward Jerusalem to die, because he knew what not only awaited him, but also what awaited the people. I guess this is the way it's got to go. You are doomed to die. So I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated, and let those who are left eat one another's flesh. So I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the people's. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of Yahweh. I said to them, to them, I don't know if it's anybody in particular in the context of the 
allegory. It's just whoever hires shepherds, I think. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Now, I take that just from the context here, because I, again, I agree with Ron, it's difficult to know exactly whether that's a large amount or not a large amount, although there are plenty of passages where 30 seems a pretty piddly amount compared to what's paid to other people. I don't even know if a piece of silver is always standardized, which is another problem. But in the context here, it seems to be an insult. To be paid wages of 30 pieces of silver, I think, is to really be dishonoring the shepherd here. It's an insult. It's undervaluing him. It's failing to acknowledge him and acknowledge his service and acknowledge his sacrifice and so on. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. I think that's sarcastic, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And notice the eye, I think that's Yahweh. So he's equating their undervaluing and dishonoring the shepherd with their undervaluing and dishonoring him, Yahweh. He said to me, now, this translation has throw it to the potter. I can't speak for the Hebrew. The Greek could equally well be translated, give it to the potter. And I think that's the right way to translate it in this context. What he's saying is, go give it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I valued them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and gave them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, potter, the word for potter doesn't have to be potter per se. It's somebody who shapes material, a molder of material. Almost always, the material that's being molded in most of the context in which you see it is clay, but not always. The verb that out of which this noun comes was used when it talks about in the time of Aaron, he gave it to the people and they took the silver and molded various implements and ornaments. So I think it's a generic word for a molder, basically. And the issue is, what is it you mold? Well, it depends on what material you're working with. A potter molds clay. A silversmith molds silver. Now, I don't know this, but when he talks about the molder in the house of the Lord, priests and Levites, Levites in particular, had a lot of different responsibilities. Is it the case that they had in-house craftsmen whose sole duty and responsibility and ministry was to take materials and shape them into the utensils for the temple and ornaments and decorations that were placed in the temple. Remember when Jesus is leading the disciples through the temple and they're admiring the votive gifts that are in the temple? And undoubtedly, as people, to show their respect and honor to God would give material gifts to the temple. Silver, maybe. And if you gave silver to the temple, what's the temple going to do with it? Well, one of the things that they might do with it is take that silver and use that material to mold and shape into the appropriate utensils or decorations or whatever can be of service to God and can honor God in the context of the building and the operations in the building. So give the silver to the molder in the house of the Lord. In other words... Put it in the treasury of the temple and let them use it to honor God. Now, in this context, it seems to me what he's saying is, and notice this is instruction of Yahweh to Zechariah on behalf of this Messiah who is to come, in my interpretation. What is Yahweh instructing the Messiah to do? 
The shepherd asks for wages. He gets a disgustingly and in an insulting amount, but God instructs him, just give it to God. And I think it's a symbolic way of saying, you're not Messiah. You're not going to do what you're going to do for the sake of being appreciated, honored, valued, and praised by the people of God, by the people of Israel. You're doing this to honor me not to gain the approval of my people, because it ain't going to happen. So never mind the wages. Don't worry about how small the wages. No matter how big the wages, put it in the treasury in the temple anyway. This is a service that you're offering up to me, dedicating to me to honor me. I think that's what he's saying. Notice, therefore, has absolutely nothing to do with a betrayal of Jesus or a blood price or anything of the sort. That's not what it's saying, if I'm right about that. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And as I said, I think that is fulfilled around the events of 70 AD, leading up to 70 AD. Okay, so maybe, right? I think that works. I hope I'm not stretching anything. I'm willing to be shown that I am. But at least that seems like a plausible way to read that allegory that actually fits as a prediction of the history of Jesus going to the people that God sent him to and the kind of reception that he got by those people. Questions on that before we go to Matthew? Jack, we talked about this earlier, but it occurred to me while you were talking, I'm wondering if the amount of money is important to make your point. I'm wondering if we took the phrase, the handsome price at which they priced me, literally, that it was a lot of money. Would that affect your interpretation? Yeah. Even if it was, couldn't you argue that regardless they try to measure Jesus with material objects, that regardless of whether it was a lot of money or a little bit of money, they still tried to measure Jesus' worth through human material objects. Well, that's a great point, and I think that's logically possible. But when we see the way Matthew is using it, I think it's critical. I'm going to argue that's the whole fulfillment of the prediction, is that the events surrounding the betrayal, the arrest, the mocking, the torture of Jesus, mm-hmm. all of that, what is that fulfilling? They're not going to value you like they ought to have valued you. But that's the prediction. And so the 30 pieces of silver here in Zechariah, is, if this is not an undervaluing, then my whole understanding of what Matthew is doing is completely wrong. Okay, that makes sense. I thought that was a great analogy that you put here. There's so much in this book, Zechariah. I don't know, and I'm really curious to see to what extent this fits into the rest of Zechariah, and it's a horribly difficult book. I'm wondering if you spent much time on the rest of it to sort of help. No, No, I'm a novice here. I'm I'm swimming. Okay, Uh, I just was curious because there's obviously a ton there. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to say more about the passage in Matthew? Okay, I'll wait then. Okay. Okay, anything else before we go to Matthew? Okay, so when you get to Matthew... I'll start with verse 3, and again, I'm still in the New American Standard. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he, now again, they translate this through, but I would argue put. So he put the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. That is, he took it and dropped it in the treasury box, in the the place for collecting votive offerings, and departed. Now, why would he do that? He feels remorse. He feels guilt. 
Is there anything he can do? He set a ball in motion that he can't stop now. Is there anything that he can do? Well, at the very least, he cannot accept the money and can offer it to God instead. So the images I got growing up, and largely due to the force of translation throw, is here I'm going to give my money back, and they refuse to take it. And he says, tosses it on the floor in anger that they won't accept it back or something like that. I don't think so. I think he's giving it to the treasury in the temple. So he put the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver. Why? Because it was in the treasury. And said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury. Notice a clue that it was in the temple treasury, potentially. And the other option is that they're going to put it in the temple treasury. But I think what he's saying is, it's not lawful to put that money in the temple treasury where Judas put it, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, here's the very difficult part. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. My numeric standard has a colon quotation mark. So they take it as a literal citation or quotation of some kind. But there's no place in Zechariah or Jeremiah or any prophet or anywhere in the Tanakh where you have a description of a them taking the 30 pieces of silver, specifically the price of one whose price has been set by the sons of Israel, and giving them for a potter's field, as the Lord directed me. There just isn't any such claim, assertion. This isn't a paraphrase. This isn't a different translation. It's just not there. What is Matthew doing? He's describing the events that just took place. In fact, he's already told us that that happened, and he's repeating that part of the narrative. They took the 30 pieces of silver. This is the added part, the price of one whose price has been set by the sons of Israel, and it's no accident that he inserts that. They took the pieces of silver, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now, since that's just a description of the events and not in any prophet anywhere, it doesn't make any sense to translate it the way our English translations have it. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled... And now we expect a citation or quotation or something. Now, I grant you, and this could get highly technical, and I'm not going to get highly technical on you, but I grant you everywhere else in the New Testament where the same syntax is used that is rendered here, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. In every other use of that syntax, what you have is a quotation or a citation from the Old Testament. That's true, and I grant that. But the question we have to ask, and the initial notes that I gave you on Monday have a little section on this. What do we give priority to when I'm reading this? Do I say, every Greek grammar I have ever read has suggested to me that I need to analyze the syntax of the Greek right here the way our English translations have. Since every Greek grammar I have ever read tells me that's the way to take it, then I'm stuck with that. I have to take it that way. So if I should be anticipating a quotation, then by gum, I'm going to make this a quotation. Is that the way to go? Or should we decide, I guess I don't know as much about Greek syntax as I thought I did. I need to go back to the drawing board and analyze the Greek syntax differently than I have analyzed it in the past because here's something that violates all of my expectations about what the author is doing. So to make a long story short and to stay away from the technicalities of it, What I would propose is a better way to translate this would be, then that was fulfilled, the very thing spoken by the prophet when he spoke it in Jeremiah. 
okay? Period. No colon, no anticipation of quotation marks. It's just a statement. Then it was fulfilled, the thing spoken by the prophet when he spoke it in Jeremiah, period. Well, now the that that's being fulfilled is ambiguous. Is it what he's about to say or is it what he just finished saying? And I would argue it's what he just finished saying. Then that which was spoken through the prophet who spoke it was fulfilled. Well, the prophet who spoke it is Zechariah. What he spoke was when Messiah comes, he's going to be undervalued and underpaid. Well, being betrayed, mocked, derided, tortured, crucified, is I think qualifies as being undervalued. And I think that's what Matthew is saying is, this should be no surprise. Zechariah predicted this. This is what that prophetic vision in Zechariah was telling us would happen to the Messiah when he came. But we have no idea what prophet to connect it to yet. He just said, well, unless we take it as Jeremiah, but we, we can argue, I think it's Zechariah. Then that which was spoken through the prophet was fulfilled. Well, what prophecy are we talking about? He doesn't quote the prophecy that he's talking about. He repeats his narrative, implanting in the narrative two important allusions that point back to the prophecy that he had in mind, namely Zechariah 11. The 30 pieces of silver, but it's not just the 30 pieces of silver. Notice he comments on the 30 pieces of silver. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, And you know what he's alluding to now in Zechariah 11. If you will, pay me my wages. If you don't want to pay me wages, never mind. So they paid him 30 shekels of silver. That's the price set on him by the people of Israel in the Zechariah 11 thing. So what is it that's being fulfilled? The price that the sons of Israel are putting on the Messiah when he comes to them. That's the part that's being fulfilled as exemplified by the incredibly dismissive treatment that the Messiah received by all concerned. Now, all concerned, not every Jew in Israel. Clearly, we know that. But the ones that mattered in terms of the flow of history, the ones that orchestrated the events of history were completely dismissive of God's Messiah when he came, willing to kill him for the sake of their own position and place. We're willing to kill him. Okay. Now, we could get into the weeds of that, but I won't accept to the extent that any of you want to. I'd be glad to do that. But I think that's what I got.